Lord, we just thank you for being the great, good, and gracious God that you are. You are worthy of our praise, of our worship, of our devotion, of, Lord, our commitment to live our life for you. We pray now that as we have been worshiping you, Father, we would continue to just worship you in that same spirit through your word now. Holy Spirit, bring the light of illumination to our minds and help us to see the truth of the gospel today for each and every one of us and the importance of it and to understand that at the heart of the Reformation, at the heart, your heart, is a love for us that is expressed in the gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I have to say this morning's worship has been just incredible for me. It caused me to actually have tears, and if you know me, that doesn't come very often. But I was deeply deeply moved. And I'm excited that today is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. In honor of that, we put the Protestant flag out. Now the staff all laughs every time I call it the Protestant flag. Because if you were raised in the Protestant church, you would call it the Christian flag. But I was raised in the Catholic church. So I was taught it was the Protestant flag. It wasn't until I was 19 that I came to understand a saving faith in Jesus that was a choice, a choice to believe in him. And it wasn't until another three years, until I made my journey into the Protestant church. And I have to say, even though I struggled with the church as a young man, I have come to love the church. I love the Protestant church and I love the Catholic church. Because the church is meant to be the body of Christ. And when we live as God calls us to live, it is an awesome, freeing, and powerful thing. One that sets our life straight on its course. It doesn't take away struggles. It doesn't remove hardships. But it does mean that the life we live, we live not alone, but with our Lord and with the church and to the glory of God. And we live it not only here, but we live it for all eternity. The question today, as I begin this message, is this. Why is something that happened 500 years ago important to us today? Is it simply because it affirms us as Protestants and it justifies who we are? Or is there something more to this Reformation?
philosopher, poet, professor, and author George Santayana helps us to understand the something more when he wrote these words. Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. At the time of the Reformation, the Church of Jesus Christ was almost 1,500 years old. For the better part of a thousand years, the church had exercised both political and religious power in the vacuum created by the fall of Roman rule. But just like God's chosen people, Israel, over time, the church had lost its way. It fell from the founding principles of the covenant of God. The church little by little fell away from founding faith in Jesus in the teachings and proclamations of the early church. Led by a papacy and professional clergy that was filled with corruption and more committed to maintaining its own power and position than serving God and serving God's people and serving the truth. Perhaps the worst travesty of all was that God's greatest gift to humankind, the gospel, was placed in chained to, war- to works, and it was lost. But it was not lost forever. The Spirit of God led people like the Reformers to rise up against the darkness, led by many interpreters and scholars. They fought against the beliefs and church practices that did not align with the Word of God. These people became known as Protestants, protesters, eventually forming their own churches and adhering to five principles. Scripture over papal authority and tradition. Faith over works. Grace over merit. Jesus over the law. And living fully for the glory of God instead of man. They called these the five solas. And they used them to guide and keep God's people from repeating the mistakes of the past. The Spirit of God brought reform to the church, immediately to the Protestant church, and later even reform to the Catholic church. I invite you now to open up your Bibles to Romans 3, 21 through 26. It is a remarkable passage that declared the truth of the gospel in the righteousness of God. And it embodies the five solas. The big idea today is this, that we must always be reforming. Spiritually vigilant like the reformers, returning to the foundations of our faith in Jesus, the word of God, and the true gospel. Let's read our text now. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show 
God's righteousness. Because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans is Paul's systematic presentation of the Gospel. It is one of the most foundational books in the Bible. And often when someone comes to saving faith, they read one of the Gospels. And the next book that they read and study with often are encouraged to go to is Romans. So that they can understand better the Gospel. Paul, as he begins his Gospel in chapter 1, speaks about the righteousness of God in verse 117, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He said, this is the essence of the gospel. Then Paul goes off into a diatribe, but he returns now here in chapter 3 to the righteousness of God. And he aligns it and shows how it is aligned with the gospel. We'll see three things about the righteousness of God this morning. We'll see the righteousness of God revealed. We'll see the righteousness of God received. And we'll see the righteousness of God achieved. And how these fit in to the gospel. God's greatest gift to us. Let's begin with the righteousness of God revealed. Verse 21, But now... The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Paul declared that the righteousness of God is not a secret. He insists that it is known in two ways. First, it is known directly. That is, it has manifested, it has appeared to us, as he wrote, apart from the law and the prophets that bear witness to it. How is this? Well, in 2 Timothy, the Word of God declares that the Messiah Jesus is the manifestation of God's righteousness. Listen to the Word of God. And now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Paul says that this is the righteousness of God manifested for us. Second, it is known by us indirectly. That is through the witness of the law and the prophets. Holy Scripture, the Word of God. While Jesus makes known the righteousness of God by embodying it in Himself and through His sacrifice upon the cross, God's Word makes known the righteousness of God by testifying to it. By proclaiming it to all the world. So that all may know of God's love for them. The Reformers believed that God had spoken to humanity through His Holy Word in order to reveal Himself, His love for people, and His promises 
as well as how he has, is, and will act on our behalf. They believe that God continues to speak his purposes to his people through his holy word, which testifies to the righteousness of God in Jesus and the true gospel. They challenged any interpretation, application, or practice that did not align with God's word. And they challenged the notion that Holy Scripture should be solely in the hands of and limited to the clergy. They professed that the Word of God should be in the hands of everyone. And this led the Bible into being translated into the common language of people. And the gospel has been proclaimed and declared down through the centuries ever since in ways that people can hear and understand it. As a result, hope and promises of God which bear witness to God's righteousness is available to all. The righteousness of God has been revealed. This takes us to the second movement of this passage, the righteousness of God received. Verses 22 through 24a. The righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus is for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. And it goes on to say, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. But our focus stops us as a gift. The text identifies that the righteousness of God is also a promise of right standing with God. That is, the righteousness of God is not just embodied in Jesus, not just expressed in the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross, and not just borne witness to and testified to by the Holy Scriptures, but it is also right standing with God that we may receive and possess. As sinners, we can do nothing to earn it. We cannot even lay claim to joining with God in it. Right standing with God is totally and unequivocally God's doing. And we must receive it. The verse tells us three things about this. First, that right standing with God comes through faith in Jesus. It is not faith alone that saves, my friends, but faith in Jesus alone that saves. Consider what we read in James 2.19. You believe that God is one. You, are, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. Their faith does not save them. It is only faith in what God has done through Jesus that saves. Martin Luther wrestled with his faith as he searched for pardon and peace. He did not find the long discipline of duty and effort that he was taught by the church bringing him any closer to God. But as Luther continued studying the Word of God, in particular Romans, he realized that it is faith alone in Jesus that saves. Luther wrote this word alone 
in the margin of his Bible next to the text of Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith alone, apart from the works of God. Right standing with God comes through faith in Jesus alone. Second, right standing with God is for all people. It is not just for a select few or the exclusive property of any group of people or religious order. As we have read, all are in need of it because all are sinners. And all must receive it as a free gift of grace because all are unable to earn it. That's why it speaks of grace and the gift that we must receive. Right standing with God is for all people who will receive it. Third, right standing with God is a declaration of God that we are justified. It is not merely forgiveness and pardon, but a legal declaration of right standing with God. It does not mean that we are morally perfect, virtuous, or fully sanctified. It is a legal rendering of God's judgment attributed to those who have faith in the cross of Jesus to save. The saving initiative that justifies us begins with God. From beginning to end, it belongs to God. We are hopeless and we are helpless. The right standing is by grace, freely given. This is what it means. It is God loving, God stooping, and God coming to our rescue, generously giving himself through Jesus, the Messiah, to us. It is right standing with God, and it is a free gift of God. The Reformers got it so right when they proclaimed that we are justified through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. There is nothing that you or I can do to initiate this or to help ourselves. God has already done it. All that we need to do is to respond to what God has done. This was the gospel from the very beginning. The letters of Paul declare it again and again as he entered into the apologetics and trying to answer the attempts of those Judaizers who would pervert the gospel and add works to it. The gospel was never meant to be chained to works or religious tradition or pedigree. It is for all people. And while the early church was able to keep it straight, as time marched on, little by little, the church lost her way. But God would not allow the gospel to be lost. It is at the center of His plan for us. Through the Reformation, the gospel was set free again. Salvation was proclaimed by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone. And now the world is able to hear the good news of God's love and respond to it.
You may have heard the gospel many times in your life. You may have considered it and thought about it, and you may have even said, oh, this makes a lot of sense. But here's the real question if you're sitting here today. Have you made the choice to believe in Jesus? That what He did on the cross by shedding His blood will save you from your sin and will ensure that you will have eternal relationship with God. That, my friends, is a choice. To simply affirm it intellectually is not enough. It is a choice that we make of will and mind and heart and spirit. It is a decision that shapes the rest of our lives. If you've not made that choice, may I encourage you to make that decision today. And if you do make that decision, please come and talk to me or somebody else afterwards. And I remind everyone who's made that decision that we're encouraged and implored to to be baptized after we make such a decision. And the reason for that is so that for all eternity we can look back on that moment when we were baptized and remember that we have forever been changed by God. Baptism doesn't save us, but it declares to all the world and to all the entities that exist in the spiritual realms, you belong to Jesus. This leads us to the third and final piece of this passage, the righteousness of God achieved. And that begins with the second part of verse 24 through the end. And we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Three words from this passage help us to grasp the meaning of these verses. Redemption, propitiation, and show, or demonstrate. And this show or demonstrate is in relationship to God's righteousness. Redemption is a market term. It means to buy back. And it was used in particular when a slave was purchased to be set free. In the Old Testament, it is used to describe what God did for His people when He brought them out of captivity from Egypt and He redeemed them. In the New Testament, it is used to describe how Jesus has brought us, those who have faith in Him, out of captivity to sin and guilt and death. By the shedding of His blood, the price has been paid. And so we are redeemed, bought 
back and set free from sin and guilt and death. Propitiation is a technical term. It's a religious word. It's used to describe a particular type of sacrifice that was offered to assuage or pacify the wrath of God. My friends, God's anger is not capricious. It is his righteous response that rests upon evil wherever it may be. As a result, his wrath is against us. This is why the Bible says that we are deserving of death and condemnation because we are participants in evil through our sins. While we cannot pacify God's wrath because we are the object of it, God is able to do something about this himself. And he has done just that by presenting himself as a sacrifice that atones for our sin through Jesus. God gave himself to save us from himself, that is, from his holy wrath. It is not of our doing, but it is of his doing. And this is an extremely important point. Not not just because it is a technical term in terms of what God did, and there is a transaction that allows us, as a result of God's anger being assuaged, to be declared with righteous standing before God, but allows God also to remain righteous. And we're going to see that in this very last point of these words. He speaks about showing or demonstrating God's righteousness. This means that the cross not only redeemed the wicked, but also demonstrated the character of God's righteousness. You know, throughout the Old Testament, God repeatedly tells the judges they must justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. God requires that the innocent are declared innocent and the guilty are declared guilty. God even goes so far as to say that it is detestable to him to condemn the innocent and to acquit the guilty. But we read in Romans 4, 5 this. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. The NIV translates that word ungodly as wicked. His faith is counted as righteousness. God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the wicked. How can God, who forbids others to do what is wrong by justifying the wicked, do so and remain righteous himself? If God suspends his holy righteous anger against evil to justify us as sinners, then God is no longer righteous nor just. But if God allows his holy righteous anger to remain, then God cannot justify us, the ungodly and the wicked. How then will he justify the wicked and still remain righteous and just? God is able to do this through the blood of Jesus. 
which provided that propitiation, that particular sacrifice that pacified the wrath of God. In the cross, God shows that he is both just in his own character and justifier, bestowing to us that standing of righteousness before him because of our faith in Jesus by grace. The Westminster Confession asks and answers the question, what is the chief end of man? Man's chief end, it says, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Of course, the reformers would be in total agreement with this. They understood the word of God to teach and affirm this. They understood that God is just, and he is also our justifier, worthy of our praise and our love and our devotion. His righteousness, though, not only demonstrates God's glory and worthiness, but his righteousness empowers us to live for his glory. But again, not by anything that we do, but by faith in Jesus through grace. Our text today helps us to grasp the importance of the five solas that the Protestant reformers proclaimed. They encourage us to keep tracking with God what God has done for all humanity through his word, faith in Jesus, grace, the cross, so that we may live as God intended us to live, a new life for his glory as he lives in us and he lives through us. It is scripture that bears witness to the righteousness of God that justifies us. Faith in Jesus is the response to the righteousness of God that justifies us. Grace and not works is the way by which the righteousness of God justifies us. The cross of Jesus is the righteousness of God that justifies us and God's just own nature. And finally, the righteousness of God demonstrates God's glory and empowers us to live for his glory. To forget the five solas, my friends, is to place ourselves in danger of losing the gospel and repeating the past. As a church and as individuals, we must always be reforming, always be spiritually vigilant, so that we and others may live in the truth and the freedom of gospel and live to the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your great redeeming love. And we thank you, Lord, that you did not allow the gospel to be lost. But you set it free again, unchained from works. We thank you, Lord, that that truth is given so freely to people and that you have called your people to be the church and to declare it. Help us as a church and as believers to be always reforming, 
to be always committed to your gospel, to realize, Lord, that in the gospel you have done everything for us. And that all we need to do is to receive it and to live in the power of it that you grant to us. We thank you for your abiding love, for your promises that never fail. And we pray that we may live as individuals, as families, and Lord, as the family of God, an individual church and part of the larger church together to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah.